So um, we're in Romans chapter six, following on from Giles's excellent um, consideration in the second half of chapter five last week. And um, I'd like to, to read the whole chapter together, but be on the lookout for the following topics as we read it through together. Um, have five topics and we'll just touch on them very briefly. One body, two tenants. Curiously, one dead and the other living. Baptism revisited. Take control. Body parts and enslaved by love. So they're the five headings that the passage really presented to me in, in my little study of it. But let's read it together. And actually, because chapter four, sorry, because chapter six begins with what shall we say then? Uh, we really need to uh, read a couple of connecting verses. So we'll start from Romans chapter five, verse 20. That's the last two verses of chapter five. And it says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as a slave, you are slaves to that one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery, in slavery to impurity and to ever increasing wickedness. So now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. 
When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I was <clears throat> alluding to in my prayer, I get a sense of a transition in chapter six. Um, Paul has been dealing with, we might call it theory, it's theology, it's doctrine, um, in his, I would say for the most part, in his previous um, arguments. And I just get the sense from chapter six, he's now moving to discuss what these um, theoretical doctrines look like in practice, because we, we really, if they're true, which of course we believe they are, we should be able to observe the evidence that they are true and that they have an impact on the lives of those who are under grace. Verse 14 is a standout verse for me. It says, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. I think before I came to this study, I had the impression, it's quite a familiar passage of scripture. And I had the impression, well, Paul is, is laying down an ideal here, an aspiration, um, something that we should strive towards. But I think in my study, I've been persuaded that what Paul is describing is the living reality for those who are now under grace rather than under law. So that the things he's encouraging us to look at should be evidenced in our lives as those who have been saved by grace through faith. So coming to our first point, which I called uh, one body, two tenants and I would say that there is an old self which is now dead in terms of its mastery over us and a new self for the first time enabling us not to sin let's jump to verse six this for me is the first time I think we're introduced certainly in Paul's argument in Romans it's the first time we're introduced to something called an old self who lives within us, and by implication, the existence of a new self, verse six. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, that's crucified with the Lord Jesus, so that the, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. It's a statement of fact that our old self when we accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our savior, was crucified with him. And that's why I say we have in our bodies, we have two tenants. And one is our old self, and we'll come to what that actually means in a second, which is dead. Paul's teaching is very clear. Our old self uh, was crucified with Christ. And by implication, we now have a new self, which is part of our rebirth, um, 
of course, we get that from John chapter three, but uh, a couple of other supporting verses that that recognize the let's call it the creation of a new self living within us. Um, the first one is Second Corinthians five, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. The expression the old of the old has gone also supports the notion that our old self is dead. Come back to that in a second as well. Ephesians 4 and 22 is a, another one. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desire, desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So the direct reference to the old self and the new self. Now, other versions may have this as the old man and the new man. Colossians 3 and 9, another, another example. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. I'm going to say that the old self, which is what we were prior to our salvation, is dead as a consequence of our rebirth. And it's dead in terms of its mastery over us. And to help understand this, there's um, a statement which I, I will read. It's from uh, um, Augustine, which goes back to AD. 354 or the, the, the fourth century AD. And he came up with something that's the four states of man in relation to sin. And this is a, a little bit of a mouthful, but I, I'll read it to you. And what Augustine was saying, and it's very much supported by scripture, including Romans chapter six. Um, he has four states of man in relation to sin. And the first, which is before the fall, he said man was able to sin and able not to sin. So that was Adam and Eve before the fall. The second, which was after the fall, was not able not to sin. And that's um, original sin. That's the doctrine of original sin, where Adam's sons thereafter were not able not to sin. And that's why we are, another expression we may have heard is, uh, do we sin because we're sinners or are we sinners because we sin? And it's the former. We um, sin because we are sinners. We're not able not to sin. And then there's the regenerate man, which is where we are in, in Romans chapter six. Because of our regeneration, we're a new creation, as we read, we are now able for the first time, able not to sin. And Augustine had a fourth state, which is a future state, glorified man, where he is unable to sin. And that's when we will be saved from the very presence of sin. So in terms of our old man, which was our fallen state, not able not to sin. In other words, 
um, sin was unavoidable for our old man, what we're learning in Romans chapter 6 is that our old man, our old nature is dead in terms of its mastery over us. And because we have a new man, we now are able not to sin. And we have this tension going on. And the challenge is giving our new self, the part of us that's now able not to sin, giving our new self mastery over our lives. So Paul is um, celebrating the reality that we have our old self living with us and its mastery over us is dead because of what Christ has done. We're a new creation and we now have the ability not to sin. And he moves on to an illustration, um, which is baptism. And I'd like to move into my second point, which is baptism revisited. And we get it from uh, Romans 6, back to Romans 6, verse 3. Oh, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. This is a very key passage of scripture for um, the teaching on, on water baptism, adult immersion baptism. And of course, we're very familiar, and you get it from, from Romans 6 verse 4, that it's a, a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection. And um, verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. And it's referring to the death of our old self. And um, that happened when we were saved and we were, were recreated as a new creation. So our, our new self came into existence in our lives. But at our baptism, it's a, it's a symbolic, public declaration of our commitment to discipleship, of course. And what the symbolism is, it says, it says to those, says to God who's watching, and it says to those who are witnessing it, that I want to acknowledge that my old self and its mastery over me, I'm acknowledging it's dead and it's buried. And we're brought up out of the water of baptism. And in the older versions, it says to walk in newness of life. And it's me making a public declaration of my commitment as a disciple to give my new self the mastery over my life, raised from the grave. You know, it's, it's interesting that, that our water baptism, our adult water baptism, the only baptism, water baptism that's talked about in the scriptures um, is a once-off thing. And yet the reality is that our commitment to walk in newness of life is an ongoing challenge. We all know that. And I'd like to liken it a, a little bit to a wedding and the marriage that follows. A wedding only happens once. A couple make their vows together on their wedding day. 
and what follows is the marriage. And I just think that's a helpful illustration about our baptism. We were baptized once and we were making that declaration. If you like, we were publicly making our vows to, to God, our commitment to follow the Lord Jesus as his disciple and to not allow our old self to have mastery over us. But it, it doesn't finish there. That's um, the, the wedding, if you like. Uh, it doesn't need to be repeated because the vows have been made. But the rest of the life is hopefully a long life walking um, in the vows that we made on our wedding day. And the challenge to me from Romans 6 is when did I last revisit my baptism vows? How committed am I these days to the way, to, to the life that I committed to <clears throat> when I was baptized? You know, it's interesting for me personally. I was baptized when I was an 11 year old kid, and I was saved much earlier than that. And I would say that the memory more vivid, more vivid to me is my baptism. I was so, so keen to be baptized, knowing that I love the Lord Jesus and that's what he wanted me to do. That was the simple extent of my understanding of it. And it was the most important thing in my life. It's very, very real. Even the memory of it is very real. And perhaps sometimes and as life, as we get older and more responsibilities and more difficulties and all of that stuff. Maybe it's quite refreshing for us to think back to the time when we made our baptism vows before God and before um, those who were there to witness it. So that's my second point. Third point is taking control. So we have this tension between the old life, which is dead in the old self, I should say, which is dead in terms of its mastery over us. Um, and the new life, which requires feeding and nurturing. And that's the thing that is able not to sin. Let's go to verse nine. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. We're talking about taking control in our own lives. Now, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin. Count means reckon yourselves dead to sin or consider your relationship with sin as broken. It just struck me that this is a, a proactive thing that we do. Our behavior, our priorities should be lived in a way that acknowledges our former relationship with sin is broken. And uh, in verse 12, do not let sin reign, that is, rule as king in your body. These are Two, if you are, if you like, quite negative sides, the things that we we mustn't do. Um, but of course, they have a, a positive side to it. Um, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. Um, my mind goes to 1 Peter 3 and 15, another very familiar verse. It says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. And that takes me back to my baptism vows. That's where I was. And I assume also, if you're baptized, I'm assuming we all are on the, on the line, that that's where you were when you made your baptism vows, setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. And that's the challenge. Another verse that sprang to mind, it's almost like a parallel verse with uh, Romans 6 and 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it's 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. And it's Paul to the disciples in Corinth. And he says, brothers, in regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking or your understanding or your doctrine, be adults. Just to offer that as a, another parallel verse to uh, Romans 6 and 11. Moving on, Paul uh, goes on to talk about body parts. Um, Romans 6 and 13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. There's our key verse that we mentioned at the beginning, verse 14. Offering the parts of our body um, takes me to another verse in Romans, which we're very familiar with, Romans 12, verse uh, 1 and 2. Um, interestingly, some might think this as a, a one-off, a bit like our baptism, uh, uh, a one-off commitment in time that we might be able to point back to. Others, and it's where I am, think of it as more as a, a daily exercise. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good pleasing and perfect will. Offer the parts of your body. What's he talking about? And I think it's, it's member by member. I think some old versions say offer your members. Um, it's our eyes, what we see. It's our ears, what we hear. It's our feet, where we go. It's our hands, what we do. It's our mouth, what we say. And it's our mind, what we think. And Paul is saying we, to, we are to offer these to God. It's interesting, isn't it? It's not that we are to use them. It's we are to uh, make them accessible to God for him to use. And of course, that opens us up to the wonderful um, subject of the gifts of the spirit and the work that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So we're to offer them to him. And then instruments of righteousness, it's a, it's a, instruments is a curious word for Paul to use. For me, it gives the, the impression of something that's precision, um, that's designed for a purpose um, and needs, needs to be understood for it to be used. 
And the, the word is literally offensive weapons. Isn't it interesting to think that our body parts, as we've defined them, in the hands of God when they're offered to him, can be uh, instruments of righteousness um, used um, as offensive weapons against Satan, and of course as defensive weapons when he um, is attacking us. It right, reminds me of a, of a PHSS hymn, 354. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as, as you choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at your feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. When I looked that uh, hymn up on the internet, it gave an extra line at the end. Here I am, all of me, take my life, it's all for thee. We have to move rapidly on to um, the second half of the chapter, and really I'm not going to do this justice. I've um, called it enslaved by love. And really the verses are from verse 17 to verse 23. Um, see if I can just quickly read that. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. It's um, quite a provocative expression. Um, slaves and that's because we all have um, in our faces these days quite rightly the anti-slavery lobby I looked up the definition of modern slavery where one person controls another by exploiting a vulnerability it is often linked with human trafficking where a person is forced into a service against their will usually forced work or prostitution. The control can be physical, financial, or psychological. We have to go to a, a Bible definition of slavery to get the, to the, the truth of the matter, as is described in, in Romans chapter six. The, the Greek word is also translated bondservant. So we were once bond servants to sin, slaves to sin. And because 
our old self is dead and it's master it no longer has mastery over us we're now bond servants to righteousness interesting that the lord jesus said no one can serve two masters he will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other and it's as though our loyalty our um our commitment if you like or let's use the word slavery it switches from our old self devoted to sin to our new self but the bible definition of bond servant is beautifully illustrated in deuteronomy chapter 15 if a fellow hebrew a man or a woman sells himself to you and serves you six years in the seventh year you must let him go free and when you release him do not send him away empty-handed supply him liberally from your flock your threshing floor and your wine press give to him as the lord your god has blessed you remember that you were slaves in egypt and the lord your god redeemed you that is why i give you this command today but if your servant says to you i do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life do the same for your maid servants that's the kind of slavery my contention here is that's the kind of slavery that we're learning about in romans chapter six i call it enslaved by love it's it's a bond servant someone who so appreciates what the master has done they're not there because um, they're being controlled although we are being controlled by him we're not being exploited because of vulnerability we're the object of his love and we appreciate that and in response it's a delight to be enslaved to him let paul have the last word he says in philippians 1 and 21 for to me to live is christ thank you